Hey guys, welcome to the Columbia View Church podcast. We're excited to share God's word with you. If you'd like to get more connected here at Columbia View Church, please visit our website at www.columbiaview.org. Our Sunday morning worship time is 10 a.m. We are meeting on site now and following the social distancing guidelines put forth by our state. And we love the opportunity to, to meet you in person and we hope that you are blessed by this word today. Have this morning a message of hope as we wade in to the hurt of this world. And as we look into the life of Nehemiah, we see that he lived in this tension of the hurt and the hope. And as Nehemiah lived in this tension, we see various building blocks, as it were, building blocks that were embedded in his life, that shaped his life that God used to unleash new life and deep rest, renewal in the life of Israel at that particular moment in Israel's history. And today, now for the church, God, in a similar yet unique way, wants to use us to be agents of peace and to be agents of renewal that actually unleashes new life and deep rest in this world through Jesus. Amen? Quick recap. We look in the life of Nehemiah, the building block of prayer. That as followers of Jesus, this essential practice of prayer is the practice where we seek the presence of God. And just like we did today, this is not just ritualistic, going through the motion stuff. This is us using the best we got to cry out to God on behalf of people who are hurting, who are broken, to say, God, may your peace come. Those prayers matter. When you feel so overwhelmed with the weightiness of what's happening and you think in your head, what does it even matter? It matters. Prayer absolutely matters. And my prayer more and more these days is, God, may you unleash your work in this world in ways that people would look and say without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is risen from the dead. And Jesus is on the throne. And Jesus invites all into relationship. Your prayers matter. We also saw the building block of repentance That in prayer and in seeking God's face, inevitably somewhere in that conversation, he exposes in our own hearts our own sin, our own brokenness that has contributed and recapitulated the brokenness of the world, and we must repent. For the unbeliever, the first act of repentance is putting faith in Jesus. And for the believer, repentance is his ongoing journey in grace by which God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, in alignment with the word, reveals and exposes ways that we are broken and adding to brokenness in the world. You see, sin is a junk drawer word that describes broken relationship between us and other people, between us and creation, between us and ourselves and us and God. And in repentance, we agree with God we've goofed and we make a commitment to change. Nehemiah did this. And the call to the church is to repent. And in that repentance, as, as Nehemiah got right with God in varying degrees and layers, inevitably, God started to birth a vision 
in his heart to reimagine the story he was writing through his people Israel to be a light to the nations. Because what inevitably happens after repentance, God gives fresh vision on what to do next. Amen? He starts to create clarity on saying, hey, this is where I want you to work and to add value and to help others experience the story that I am writing throughout human history. Nehemiah started to get a vision for his people and for Nehemiah, that was rebuilding the wall. But you see, as we get a vision for how God wants us to to continue his story in the world, it inevitably requires leadership. Because believe it or not, in a lot of ways, the secular progressive vision of human flourishing that is grounded in self-autonomous individualistic living eventually breaks down because guess what? We are a people and we live among people. And in Nehemiah, we see good and mixed leadership. He's not a perfect example, right? And yet there's so much we can learn from him, and we're going to dive into a little bit today, that his leadership was stewarding God's authority. That in our culture, we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and dismantle and deconstruct every authority structure. And yet in Jesus, we see him stewarding God's authority and serving others. This is the epitome of leadership. It's serving others. We see this in Nehemiah. He served others. And in that leadership and in serving others, Man, it was contested, wasn't it? There were some hard times. There were some dark days. There were some difficulties. Goodness gracious, there was moments where the people were about ready to give up. The rubble was so much. The task was so big. The problems were seeming insurmountable. And in that, Nehemiah developed resilience. And we defined resilience as leaning on or drawing from God's strength. That the reality is, as we are called to be and do what Jesus has started, we cannot do that in our own strength. I'll tell you what, man, this past week, I spent most of my week remodeling my bathroom. And as as I'm reflecting on and praying on and thinking through all the things happening in the world, I just have this crazy sense of powerlessness. Anybody relate to that? Just feeling over, stinking whelmed, Right? And yet, we know that the option to check out isn't really an option. We got to do something. But what do we do? And in that tension of the hurt and our hope, resilience is developed. And today, we're going to look at the sixth of seven building blocks of renewal. And that is justice. Restoring what is broken. Because in the life of Nehemiah, there was much brokenness among the people that had to be dealt with. Until Jesus returns, this life will always be a mixed bag of hurt and hope. Let's jump into the Gospels to look at these themes of hurt and hope in the message in the way of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. 
The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Do you hear the excitement and the hope here? The kingdom of God is here. It is among us. And here's the way into the kingdom. Repent and believe the good news. The message of Jesus absolutely offers hope in the midst of hurt. In Mark 16, 6, we read this. This is the account of the angel coming to the women who went to the tomb where they thought Jesus was, but Mike, check this. Don't be alarmed, the angel said to them. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, but he ate here. He is risen. See the place where they laid him. Church, I want to remind us this morning that in the midst of all the chaos, Jesus has overcome sin. He has overcome death. He has overcome grave. He has overcome the devil. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And in the midst of what seems to be chaos and like God is checked out and it can feel like that, God is in control. But it don't feel like that, does it? We live in this tension of hope and hurt. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We'll read it again. We've read this many times. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Church, we are on the winning team. Be reminded that in Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is with us. He is with you. He is with the people in Afghanistan right now who are undergoing the most horrific atrocities possible. He is with those around the world locally who are suffering from the pandemic, whether inflicted by COVID itself or experiencing the grief and the sorrow as a result of close loved ones who are experiencing it or just the indirect, we're just kind of living in this weird time. God is among us. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. But you see, in the gospels, we also encounter hurt. Matthew 24, 4 through 8. And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and many will be deceived. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. 
There's been much conversation and debate throughout church history as to what exactly Jesus meant here. Some are in the camp of saying this was particularly talking about the moment leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple sacked by Rome in AD 70-ish by Emperor Titus and that that came and went and was done. Others would say, no, this is larger thinking than just that. This is speaking of eschatology, the end times. There's things embedded in here that have yet to come. And so wherever you land kind of in that camp of conversation, I think the thing we can all agree upon is that until Jesus returns again in triumphal entry, which he will, he promised, he is coming again, this life and this experience will always be a mixed bag of hurt and hope. Of hurt and hope. Jesus put it again this way in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have no idea what it's like in America to undergo the persecution that many of our brothers and sisters in the faith are experiencing all around the world. And yet, the words of Jesus ring true now more than ever. Blessed, he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not to critique American culture too much, but just for a moment, I feel so dirty almost as I juxtapose placing in this beautiful quartz countertop in my bathroom while I think of people around the world that are being just abused as all get out. And yet in the lavishness of what may be the American dream, the kingdom belongs to these over here. May God wake us up and shake the apathy and, and, and shake the extremes of being the ostrich that just sticks our head in the ground is just like, I don't want to deal with all this. Or the extreme of, I have to go and fix all the problems. But may God help us to live in the tension of the hurt and the hope as we seek to love people in the name of Jesus. Amen? God, help us. Hurt and hope. This reminds me a bit of the Stockdale paradox. Anybody heard that before? The Stockdale paradox. As I talk, as I speak into a little bit more, you, you probably sound familiar. An article put up by Mike Cola Grossi in 2018. The Stockdale Paradox is a concept that was popularized by Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. It was named after James Stockdale, former vice presidential candidate, naval officer, and Viet Vietnam prisoner of war. The main gist of this is that you need to balance realism with optimism. And author Jim Collins found a perfect example of this paradoxical concept in James Stockdale. He was a prisoner of war, kept in one of the camps for seven years. 
James Stockdale was one of the highest ranking naval officers of the time. And during this horrific period, Stockdale was repeatedly tortured and had no reason to believe that he'd make it out alive. Held in the clutches of the grim reality of his hell world, he found a way to stay alive by embracing both the harshness of his situation with a balance of healthy optimism. And Stockdale explained this idea in the following way, and I quote, You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you cannot afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Simply put, it's this idea of hoping for the best, but acknowledging and preparing for the worst. Because in a lot of ways, the dangers lie in the extremes. If all we do is focus in on the doom and gloom that we hear and we see, this inevitably leads to depression and despair. If we go to the other extreme and say everything's going to be gumdrops and rainbows, I mean, Jesus has risen from the dead, guys. Like, everything's going to be okay. Eventually, we become disillusioned, cynical, and defeated. Many of the people in these POW camps in Vietnam who were the optimists who said, hey, we'll be out by Christmas. Christmas came and went. And they said, we'll be out by Easter. Easter came and went. We'll, we'll be out by Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving came and went. And eventually, they died from a broken heart. The dangers always tend to be in the extremes. But if we can live in the balance of the hurt and the hope, we can become agents of justice. Pause. I might have just given you a little whiplash there. How does balancing hurt and hope make, agent, make us agents of justice? You see, as we live in the tension of our own hurts and our own hopes, we become agents of healing. Those that are only hurt and broken and despairing can't give what they don't have. Those who tend to brush off suffering and pain and try to ignore it and just be the optimist and everything's fine, they don't connect and relate to people who are suffering. And yet as we go through our own hurts and pains while holding on to the hope and the goodness of Jesus, in this tension, as we relate to people and as we offer hope to people, we can be agents of healing used by God to restore what is broken. Amen? And this is what biblical justice is all about. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9 puts it this way. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Do you hear the language there of justice being taking up the problems of others and advocating and actually entering into the mess, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through, through activism, whether it's through a helping hand, whether it's 
super macro level and systemic or whether it's super grassroots and, and personal. Biblical justice is all about taking on the character and the nature of God through Jesus Christ and taking that to where brokenness exists and making the hurts and the pains of others our own hurts to offer healing. This is biblical justice. Jeremiah 22.3 puts it this way. This is what the Lord says, says Jeremiah. Do what is just and what is right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do not wrong or do violence to the immigrant, the orphan, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. And while I would say it's probably unfair to try and take on every and every cause that is out there, there is a call as being a follower of Jesus, as having what some theologians would call the imputed righteousness of God on us through faith and repentance in Jesus. We have a responsibility to enter into the very mess and brokenness that we were saved from to offer a message and actions of love, of hope. Dr. Karen Ellis puts it this way. When we do pursue biblical justice, we proclaim to a watching world, there's a better day coming. I think now is time more than ever when people are thinking at least thinking way more about eternal things maybe than they ever have. The events in our world in just the past, I don't know, four or five years really got people thinking. What an opportunity for us to demonstrate to a hurting world the character, the love of God. The Bible Project puts it this way, justice is courageously making other people's problems your problems, loving your neighbor as yourself. Tim Keller puts it this way, biblical justice is not, first of all, a set of bullet points or a set of rules and guidelines. It is rooted in the very character of God and it is the outworking of that character, which is never less than just. Biblical justice is characterized by radical generosity and universal equality. He lists a few more qualities there that I'll leave out just for the sake of simplicity. But biblical justice is characterized by radical generosity and universal equality. Let's dive into these two things a little bit, looking in the life of Nehemiah. Radical generosity as a means of enacting justice, as being agents of justice, and life-changing advocacy. In the life of Nehemiah, we read in chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of people to feed. Wow. Each day, an ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. 
In spite of all this, check this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Okay, what in the world is going on here? Let's dive into this a bit. As governor of Jerusalem in this time, there was a certain allotted stipend, as it were, to that role. And the people, the governors who had come before Nehemiah, took advantage as all get out of those perks. Exploitation, whatever you want to call it. Nehemiah comes on the scene and he condemns that through his own actions of generosity. He refused these allotments, the food, the wine, the luxuries, as it were. And this is a guy who lived prim and prestigious in the ivory tower of the king of Persia. He was a cupbearer. So if there was one that knew what five-star hotel life was like, it was Nehemiah. And yet in Nehemiah, one of the ways that he enacted justice among the people was to live ridiculously generous generosity is absolutely a practice that as followers of Jesus, we can live out that has the potential to actually bring about justice, restoration, healing, peace to others. And Nehemiah did this for the people. What does that look like for us today? church 2021 in portland living ridiculously generous the problems that surround us are many the houseless situation the political situation economics the covid situation the immigration situation which i would say as someone that works in a, in a low-cost immigration legal service office here there is a refugee and immigrant crisis approaching us yet again it's happening, guys. In the midst of this, what does it look like to live generous? I think one of the most simple ways that we can live generously to others is simply to add value to them. There is enough critique, there's enough bitterness, there's enough attack, there's enough pushback, animosity, hatred. All the junk drawer words of negativity, there's enough of that on social media, on the streets. And yet, if we could be people that at minimum see the intrinsic value in each person, whatever color, whatever background, whatever experiences, and affirm the intrinsic value that they carry as someone who was made in the image of God, that in of itself has the potential to advance justice in this world. At the most basic sense, at the most small grassroots sense, again, what a complex conversation and issue, right? And yet, instead of just pawning this conversation off to people in D.C. or at the Capitol or at the City Hall or whatever, what if we, as the people of God, who have the Holy Spirit within us, choose to, in the midst of our own hurt and hopes, enter into the brokenness of our world and add value to other people as a first step. It's been really cool, guys. I gotta tell you, 
with how God is using our church to welcome the immigrant in the name of Jesus. I talk about, and we'll probably do a teaching series on this in the future, um, but in the Old Testament in particular, God has like a fave for almost. Not that God has favorites, but he has a special affection, it almost seems like, to the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the immigrant. And in a lot of ways, it's because these people in destitute situations, God recognizes can become taken advantage of and hurt. And in a lot of ways, Israel was to be the light and the hope and the healing to these people. And where they missed the mark, we see Jesus fulfilling it in perfection. In a sense, in an earthly sense, fatherless. He was this weird situation with Mary and Joseph. And how does that all work? Because Joseph's not really your dad. And he got that a little bit. Never married, so definitely not a widow, but in the sense of not having the helpmate. An immigrant from heaven <laughs> went down to Egypt for a time to escape the tyranny. Poor, homeless. Wow, in Jesus, we see the embodiment of the brokenness of the world. And we're called to live in his example. Live ridiculously generous. Radical generosity. The second element from Nehemiah, life-changing advocacy. You see, Nehemiah didn't just stop at being generous, but he actually took up the responsibility and the problems of others and used his position, used his authority, used his leadership to advance justice. Mike, check this. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. When I heard their outcry, And these charges, I was very angry. If you remember from last week, among the very people of Israel, there was people who were taking advantage of people. They were giving them loans and charging this exuberant amount of interest. Usury, or or usury, I can never say that word right, is what it would be called in that sense. Just bad business dealings. Dirty, rotten, scoundrel action, right? Nehemiah calls it out. He was angry. Verse 7, I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. At some point, as followers of Jesus, we have to recognize that the things around human rights, around immigration, around all these hot-button cultural issues that in so many senses of the conversation have been exclusively political, they are absolutely theological (laughs) because they're they're, they're tied to the character of God. And at some point... As followers of Jesus, and again, not to get overwhelmed and saying we got to fix all these problems, but at some point, I would challenge us and implore us to ask the question, God, who am I advocating for? Maybe it's someone in your own family who needs someone to come alongside them and to advocate for resources. Maybe it's the immigrants in our community you can come alongside and advocate for. 
maybe there's so many initiatives out there. What can I do to actually take up the problem of someone else? At the most basic grassroots level, perhaps it's someone in my own home. At the macro, big level, it's taking on roles in lobbying and advancing change within the political system or whatever. But at what point do we as followers of Jesus say, okay, God, what is my role in this? How can I advocate for someone else? Nehemiah did this, and he became an agent of change, an agent of justice. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now, and I just want to leave us with this thought as we reflect, as we go into our time of communion. How is God calling me to end the tension of my own hurts and hopes? Bring peace to someone else. How in the midst of my own stuff I'm dealing with, my own hurts, my own ailments, my own sicknesses, my own hopes, my aspirations, my dreams, in the midst of this tension I live in, how does he want to use me to add value to someone else, to be an agent of peace and justice to someone else? Hey, thanks for joining us. Our passion is to know and share God's heart, and we're so glad that we're able to do that with you today. If you'd like to visit us in person, please visit our website at www.columbiaview.org for directions. We'll see you next week.